let, can we have um, Paul Sachs join us? Hello. Let me explain. Um, first of all, welcome back. I think we're still losing a few to the nice weather and the park right across the doorway. Um, I saw a number of the speakers out there as well. Um, certainly compared to yesterday, it's, uh, it's a beautiful day back in New York City. Uh, so we're going to toss around some, uh, some cases. Um, Paul Sachs, uh, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard uh, and one of the uh, leading lights in this field, as you all know, uh, is going to help uh, guide us with some cases. Uh, he'll toss some questions to the panel. I'll try to duck as many as possible as I uh, enter my uh, re reclining years. <laughs> and uh, But joining with us, we have uh, uh, people that you've already met, except for Carlos. Carlos uh, Del Rio is a professor of medicine at, uh, at Emory University, uh, one of the one of the uh, leading figures, and in, in, I'll mention this is now part of the National Academy of Medicine, where he is uh, now the foreign secretary as well. So, uh, in addition to all of his HIV work, uh, Carlos is taking on some important policy uh, issues as well. Uh, but we have Elaine Abrams. Uh, we think there might be either pediatric or maternal cases that Paul will uh, present to us and Chloe, who you met uh, earlier. And if we have uh, any questions that we feel stumped. By we know some of you in the audience, and so we might uh, we might hold up a mirror and uh, and show uh, show you the questions to answer as well. Uh, so, Paul, do you want to take it away? Sure. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Paul. And I want to uh, sort of uh, full disclosure. I, I had every intention of attending in person, and uh, unfortunately, I had to cancel that based on my own um, respiratory viral infection that I acquired, which at least based on all the testing I've had so far appears not to be COVID-19, which is very surprising to me, but it was not something I felt like sharing with anyone else. And so I'm sitting here in my home office and Thank hoping, you. <laughs> hoping I can uh, just uh, communicate this, this, the cases the same way. I also want to say it's an honor to be invited. Scott Hammer was my very first um, attending when I did a rotation in infectious disease during medical school. Okay, so uh, these are my disclosures, and here are our learning objectives, uh, and we're going to talk about the contraindications to long-acting injectable therapy, initiating HIV treatment for women trying to conceive, and defining the clinical and lab characteristics of HIV controllers. So uh, here's a knowledge assessment question, and I'm going to start you off by working um, which of the following regimens is now recommended for all pregnancy-related clinical categories for people with HIV? And I'd actually prefer that you vote on this one and that we, uh, if possible, wait until the end and see the pre and post uh, presentation. But you can vote on this one now. Uh, and uh, so the voting is taking place or do I need to advance for the voting to start?
All right. So anyway, 69% said dolutegravir, tenofovir, elephantamide, and procetamine. So uh, this is the first case. Uh, it does not have anything to do with that question you just you just heard. And, <laughs> and it, it's a uh, 68-year-old man uh, with long-standing HIV, and he's clinically very stable. And he is intrigued by the very flashy direct-to-patient ads for long-acting injectable art. And he, as a result, is referred to you uh, by a clinician who does not offer this option. So uh, I'm going to actually now uh, have another polling question, and this one will see the answers. Does your clinical practice offer injectable cabotegravir and rolpivirine? And the answers are no, we don't have the resources to do it. No, but we plan to offer it soon or, or yes. Go ahead and vote. Okay, we get music, right? We do have music. If Mike Sag were here, he would tell us what it is. Okay, so um, 59% say yes, 27% say no, but we plan to offer it soon, uh, and 15% say no, we don't have the resources to do it. So, you know, you can see that around a third of people who are HIV specialists and experts, people attending this course, don't offer this service yet. And um, I'm just going to mention the advantages of this treatment. I think they're pretty evident to everyone, um, the privacy and the reduced reduction in self-stigma. And the, the thing about the patient-reported preferences, which has been clear in, from the studies, is that patients who choose to do it greatly prefer it over oral therapy. And the way you look at these figures is that uh, the black bar, the people who, who are, have gotten is, is the uh, injectable and the white bar is the is the continued antiretroviral treatment. And if the black bar is longer than the white, then you can see that they've had a significant increase in their patient preference. And these are the Atlas flare and the pooled analyses at week 24 and week 44. Thought maybe uh, Chloe, you could offer some perspectives on these data since you were involved in generating them. Chloe, are you asking? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting is that the um, patient acceptability to start with was extremely high across all of the groups. And interestingly, the findings are less, the least marked in the FLARE study, which was uh, for people that received first-line therapy for 20 weeks before receiving the drugs. So they potentially could see the least benefit because they'd been on therapy for the least amount of time and sort of potentially had the least treatment fatigue. But you can see that despite incredible satisfaction at baseline, you know, in terms of acceptability, it was very, very acceptable in many ways, much more acceptable than antihypertensives or diabetic medications. There were still really significant differences in preference. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's the people on longstanding oral art uh, who chose to be in this study, they really liked switching to injectable. Um, you know, as you pointed out, though, not, not, as, not quite as strong in the flare study. Maybe they were not tired of it yet, as you mentioned. Um, this is a treatment that is not a no-brainer, um, and uh, the logistics about implementing it is something we've really struggled to uh, accomplish here in the United States, and I've heard a very, very wide range of differences between practices, and Carlos, I don't know how things are going down in Atlanta for you. You know, it's, it's, it's complicated, Paul. We, we don't have Medicaid expansion, and... Uh, we essentially are handling on a, on a sort of have a pilot program, and essentially there is a, a, a person in front of the pharmacy that is doing full time the calling the company, getting the approval, getting because you know the, the drug, the oral drug is not available, so you need to get everything from the company. So doing the approvals, doing all the different things, and then starting the, the oral lead in, and then switching the patient to injectable. And uh, it's just a, a, I mean, it's just a lot of manpower time to get one person started. And then to continue in that person. So uh, we're looking at this. The, the, the pilot is going well. The issue is if you really try to scale that up, what is, what is the cost? What, what do you need to do clinic, in the clinic to, to sort of re-engineer re, uh, the way you're providing services? Because it's going to have to be very different. Yeah. So uh, those questions we're struggling right now is really who, who's going to be sending the reminders to the patient to come? Who's going to be tracking all these individuals? What's going to happen? Because, you know, right now, the providers are not doing that. You know, you don't have a physician saying, oh, you know, my patient is due for the re- re- refill renewal right now. You, here, you're going to really have to have somebody call that person, schedule that person, make sure they come or make sure they get into their injection wherever they are. And those are going to be the logistical issues that I think are going to be, you know, things that we're still struggling to try to figure out. It's not impossible, but it's just different. Paul, I have a question. How, how is this working with people that are already on um, other uh, daily oral medications for other conditions. So do they feel the same uh, sense of urgency to move to injectables? Um, I would describe a uh, dichotomous response. Some saying, I already take other pills daily, so this is not a real big advance for me. And yet some saying, I've been waiting for something like this for years. Uh, and I don't understand quietly the psychology behind it, but I've observed it now so many times that I, I feel like there must be something there. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether um, uh, Chloe or Carlos uh, has a similar experience to that, where someone's like, no chance, I'm already taking other pills and others, I can't wait. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something quantifiably different. The experience of living with HIV is something that feels different to people than living with other conditions. And the daily reminder of of having HIV is experienced differently. And I think for that reason, the decision isn't, it's not only about convenience, it's about some other quality, which is also important. So I think although people may be on other medications, they may still prefer to be on injectable HIV treatment. Yeah. This particular patient, for example, um, because he's an older man, he's taking several other medications. Um, I, I put the other issues uh, on here uh, that is uh, that are that are um, uh, part, all of them pretty obvious, and uh, I want to just mention one that is for those of us who have been living in the Dolutegravir, Bictegravir era, 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 a, a kind of kind of a, a, 
a little bit hard to reconcile, and that's some treatment failure despite adherence to the regimen. Um, we have been in this uh, very blissful situation for years where people who take ART pretty much uh, always are virologically suppressed. Um, and I don't, I don't know why it is uh, that, th- that this is very hard to communicate to patients, but it, it is. I think it's probably because the fact that, that the fact that their treat regimen may fail, even though they're doing everything they can, is not something we have been able to communicate well to patients. Uh, so at least uh, it's, a small, it's a small absolute risk. It's a high relative risk. Um, I wanted to just, I, want to I just want to check for the people online. Is, can you hear me now? Is, is, we want to make sure the microphones are connected because we're hearing from some people online saying they can't hear the panelists. Yeah, they can't hear you or you. So, well, no, it's not better. Lost. So no, they, they say it's not better. So whatever we're doing yeah. is not. We're working on it. Okay. Okay, so I think it's just you, Paul, quite frankly. We will make sign languages or something. Oh, no, they're, they're hearing me okay. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, I took some information from the cabrocoverine package insert about the um, starting and stopping this uh, because none of it is the kind of thing you can just sort of easily do or make up on your own. Um, all of these guidances for when people are going to say have scheduled missed visits or whether they have unanticipated missed visits um, it's not easy Uh, and so I just emphasize that for clinicians like us if this happens please check the package insert and follow the instructions as closely as you can Um, in our uh, group of patients who've started cabotegravir quivering we have one uh, one very uh, very nice but very um, poor executive function individual who for some reason can never remember to come in on the scheduled day, but comes in, you know, after missing the appointment, we'll call and they'll come in um, within that, within that week, which is fine. Okay. So um, let me give you some additional history on this patient. So he was diagnosed with HIV in 1983, and I'm 1993. He, it was complicated by herpes zoster uh, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is currently in remission. He's been treated with several regimens. And when you show him pictures of the, the HIV treatments, he recognizes uh, zidovidine and denivir, favarins, lopinavir, ritonavir, darunavir, and tonavir. He says he's never had treatment failure resistance. Um, he's currently on an unconventional regimen of TAF, FTC, dolutegravir, and abacavir. And outside records show that he has had virologic suppression on that regimen since 2014 when he was already on it. Uh, and you cannot find any additional data. So... Um, so now your your query, my query to you is, would you switch this person to cabotegravir or pivorine? And it's a binary answer. Yes or no? All right. Voting should be taking place. Our staff is hearing just one. Okay. I can see the votes starting to accumulate up here. We're just going to bring up the volume up a little bit. 
Okay, so 57% say no, and 43% say yes. Uh, let me hear from our panel and see if we've solved the, the, the volume problem. Um, I'm happy to say that I definitely would not do it. <laughs> you would not do it? I would not do it, no. I'm, I'm actually just asking to check, check the volume as much as anything yeah, I, else. I, I can't I, I even lie. I would definitely not do it. Got it, got it. <laughs> Okay, you are now being heard. Thank you. How about uh, Carlos? You know, I was going to be, I, I voted for no. I, I went into the principle of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, but but because Chloe said no, I'll have to say yes. <laughs> and, and, just, and just to create some controversy and discussion here. And I think this is somebody who is a very good patient. He's been here and there's no clear evidence of failure. And I don't know what he, why he's on that really strange regimen, but he probably doesn't need all those medications. And by switching him, we may be able to decrease the number of drugs he's exposed to, primarily uh, nucleosides. So I think it's worth giving it a try. But what do you risk if it doesn't? Well, if you risk that he will not be suppressed. We'll, we'll monitor him. If he loses suppression, we'll put him back in his old regimen because he doesn't have any evidence of resistance. Well, but he might develop resistance, yeah. right? So, th- I, I mean, when, when we've we, we've uh, polled uh, uh, in our in our clinic at the VA, when we poll these people with unusual regimens like this, when you dig far enough back in the records, there often is a good reason, or at least there is an identifiable reason why they're on it. So, I, I would be not in a hurry to switch a regimen, even though it didn't fit our current um, paradigm. But can I say one more thing? Is that okay? I just, for me, I agree exactly with that. So basically, if someone's on three NRTIs and they've pointed out efavirenz as they recognize the box of efavirenz, if they've ever failed on efavirenz, they'll have significant mutations. And I just feel that, you know, in our patients, I've been scouring the history for situations <laughs> like this and absolutely avoiding it when there's NNRTI, potential NNRTI resistance. Uh, thank you, uh, Chloe. Uh, and let's uh, move on. So uh, first, I want to just put this these pictures of the people who were in the Atlas and Flare studies. And as you have heard, uh, clearly, these are people who have never failed treatment. Uh, so um, none of the people who participated in these studies ever failed treatment. Um, and then uh, I'm going to say there's another tool we have, another fancy test we can order, which is an archive genotype. Would you send an archive genotype? And here are your answers. One is no, I wouldn't use cabropivirine regardless of the results. Yes, if he has no ropinavir or insti resistance, he would be a candidate. Or, and yes, I'll send it because knowledge is power. I want to find out what kind of resistance he has. All right. So people, people would send it to see if he would be a candidate. 
Uh, and some people would send it also because just to find out knowledge. Uh, and then no, I wouldn't use it regardless of the results. And I, I do uh, agree with Jerry's chat comment, which uh, some people don't trust these. Um, just going to get uh, maybe going to get uh, Carlos's view on this one. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I would, I, I was going to say, I'm not sure I necessarily would trust the result on this patient. I think I may, I may, I may send it just because it may provide, as you say, another piece of information, but I'm not sure what I would do with the result. And whenever you order a test, you need to know what you're going to do with it. And therefore I wouldn't probably order it. Okay. Yeah, I found myself torn between that and no, just because if you, you know, again, knowledge is power, but if you're not going to do anything with it, then there yeah. is a cost to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to at least um, highlight this paper because uh, some people say that archive genotypes uh, are less sensitive than standard genotypes. And it's not quite so simple. I think that probably the best way to describe archive genotypes is that they sometimes give sig results that are concordant with genotypes. They sometimes give results that are less sensitive, and they sometimes give results that are more sensitive. But what I liked about this study is that they actually showed that the people who switched based on the archive genotype results did not experience an excess in virologic failure. Um, they did achieve a lowering of the number of pills they took a day. So there is some, some utility to this test. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, if it's available in um, in England, Chloe, in your lab. Do you do, do you use it? Uh, it is available with the bit of sort of sending it off to other labs, but we don't we don't do a lot of it. And I think if you see the resistance, it's there, but you don't. It's not necessarily sensitive. So if it's there, it's there. If it's not there, you don't really necessarily know whether it was there. So from that perspective, yeah. I mean, one thing that we'll point out subsequently is that the data showing the concern about NNRTI resistance for ropivirine, cabropivirine, come from an archive genotype study. So anyway, this is what happened. Uh, he was informed that he's not a good candidate for cabropivirine since his treatment history is unknown and may have resistance. And we did send the test in anticipation of exploring other switch options. And uh, this is his nucleoside resistance, where you could see he has a lot of thymidine-associated mutations and 184V, so he's resistant to all the nucleosides. Uh, and then also he has extensive NNRTI resistance, just as uh, Chloe was concerned about. Um, and uh, no, no protease inhibitor or integrase resistance found. So uh, as you've heard uh, and know that there have been studies trying to figure out why does this small number of people fail on cabropivirine? And it turns out the strongest predictor is if you go into the studies with some degree of ropivirine resistance, uh, the odds ratio for failure was 40. Um, so that's, that's the most important. Um, the other important ones are listed here. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, Q8 weak dosing was not a factor, even though in the Atlas 2M study, Q8 weak dosing was actually a little bit of a risk for virologic failure. So um, we now know his, his resistance pattern. And 
his current regimen is TAF, FTC, Dolutegravir, Abacavir. With this new information from the archive genotype, would you switch? And your options are no, yes, stop Abacavir, continue TAF, FTC, Dolutegravir. Yes, stop Abacavir, switch to Bictegravir, FTC, TAF, or yes, something else entirely. Okay, and 30% chose the Bictegravir switch option, and uh, 24% just stopping the Abacavir. And some people said uh, something else, and uh, be interesting, maybe we'll hear in the Q&A what that is. Just in to say that there is now a <clears throat> study looking at people who had likely extensive nucleoside resistance and ended up switching to dolutegravir plus two nucleosides. So that's kind of like the option of continuing dolutegravir, TAF, FTC, and stopping a abacavir. And the study results were excellent, showing that you could basically do this. That in people who are virologically suppressed, it almost doesn't matter what their nucleoside resistance is like. You can switch them to dolutegravir plus tenofovir, FTC, um, pretty much safely, very safely. This is not the same as people with treatment failure. <clears throat> so there now have been extensive studies showing this, uh, people switching from switching to dolutegravir plus TXF or XTC or to BIC FTC TAF with NRTI resistance. And then also people with treatment failure, but the treatment failure studies only involve dolutegravir. Uh, and those are the Donning and the Nadia studies. So I'm going to actually move along and just say that in the Nadia study, which does show that dolutegravir was non-inferior to durunaviratonavir, the patients had extraordinarily high levels of nucleoside resistance, half of them with K65R, uh, 80, uh, more than 80% with, with 184V. So that means that they were pretty much resistant to the tenofovir 3TC that they received. And despite that fact, it was non-inferior, but there were nine patients out of 235 who developed dolutegravir resistance. So as a management of treatment failure, it's a little different from managing people who are virologically suppressed. So the way this case came out was we just switched them to Bictegravir FTC TAF. There really isn't a, 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 it was just an easy solution to his complex regimen and taking a Bacavir. Bacavir has never been synergistic with Tenofovir. And so the way he got on that regimen to start is unclear. But when you look back at some of these funny old regimens, as Paul said, you can find out that at the time there may have been a rationale behind people being on them, but there really doesn't need to be a rationale any further. Any uh, last comments on this case before we move on? Well, and you simplify his regimen quite a bit. So that's, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I would comment that the data for switching to Bictegravir away from is is considerably less extensive than for dolutegravir and that the numbers in the brave study are small and the numbers in the 4030 study are small particularly those that weren't based on proviral dna 
So I would say that the extent of the evidence with dolutegravir is significantly more. And we also have data in heavily treatment experienced people uh, in the Viking studies. And we also have experienced people with integrase resistance in the saline studies. So for that reason, I would say that in terms of the, the data, the dolutegravir is, is better evidenced, although the evidence that we do have is um, positive in terms of bectegravir. Yeah. I mean, par- partially that it's a leap of faith made by the fact that dolutegravir and bictegravir are very similar. Um, and, uh, and I'll leave the, uh, the, dis- the dissimilarity or arguments to the, to the lawyers. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is the next case. Um, uh, it's uh, called control. And this is a 44 year old woman diagnosed with HIV in 2011 when her partner disclosed to her that he had HIV. She had no symptoms, never had an illness consistent with uh, HIV. And the lab tests showed that her HIV screen was positive, confirmed by Western blot. That was in the Western blot era. Her viral load was target not detected. Her CD4 cell count was normal with a normal CD4, CD8 ratio. And the tests were repeated a month later, and the results were very similar. So the question for the panel and the group is, is she an HIV controller? Yes or no? Go ahead and vote. All right. Maybe is the leading answer. And I like that answer. Um, maybe, maybe I'll uh, I'll give Paul Voberding a chance to answer first. Oh, I I, I said yes. I mean, I think she's um, clearly uh, infected, by based on the results of her lab test, you've looked a couple times and can't find virus. Now you could look, do a more sensitive viral load, I guess, uh, looking for even more evidence of that. But at this point, I think. I'm not sure it's going to make a whole lot of difference, but I said yes. Okay. Uh, any any other views, Carlos? Well, I would say a couple of things. Uh, this reminds me of a patient of mine some time ago that I saw that was very similar to this. Her partner was positive, and then uh, she was, uh, quote-unquote, not infected. And then when I got into the room and I started to talk to her, I, I was all excited about seeing it. A, a elite controller and when I got to the room started talking to her it turns out she got started antiretroviral therapy oh, that yeah. her partner had given her and and that's why she she had come to clinic already virally suppressed that's <laughs> and, probably one of the most common reasons and nobody had asked her that question right yeah. so very, I just want to be sure that she's not taking the medications her partner has when she found she was HIV positive and that may be what you need what's going on the other thing is that you know you haven't grilled out HIV too so I think you want to be sure that this is not HIV-2. I mean, we didn't hear anything about her background, where she came from, et cetera. But that would be one other thing that I would do. So, so that's why I think it's a maybe. I mean, there are a couple yeah. of things I would, I would do before I say this is an elite controller. Except her, her I mean, her HIV-1 uh, Western blot is fully, fully positive. So, okay. Okay. so it, it, you know, I haven't asked you any questions, Elaine, yet, because you're a pediatrician, which my, my wife is a pediatrician, and she would say... <laughs> Um, but but you're welcome to weigh in on this one also. No, I, I, I feel surrounded by experts for okay. this specific definition. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I had a question though. As you were doing this, Paul, that, um, 
would she be a candidate for PrEP if you, if she, if you didn't think she was infected? I mean, she, her partner is infected and we don't know what kind of safe behaviors they're experiencing. Oh, she, she, she would definitely be a candidate for PrEP, um, but she's, yeah. she's definitely infected because she's got a reactive screen and a reactive Western blot. So right, right, right. too late. All right. So I, I thought maybe we would um, take a moment to do these definitions because they're used a lot. And I want to stress this uh, f- concept of, of time being an important part of um, the definition. And, you know, when you look at the so-called elite controllers, they're people who durably control HIV replication. And they're not common. They usually are about, you know, the estimates are between 0.1 and 0.5%. Most studies closer to 0.5%. And there's another group that are considered sort of not controllers like the elite folks, but they just keep the viral load very low for years and years and years. That's obviously much more common. And back in the days when we had their when to start arguments, we would we would actually frequently see people like this. And then this last group, this is the oldest term, the quote long-term non-progressors. These are people who just have high CD4 cell counts for a long time, and they have a variety of viral loads in their background. Uh, and the people who really excite the HIV researchers and the basic scientists and the translational researchers and people like Bruce Walker are the, is the first group. And it's so exciting that there are actually probably more people studying this than there are people who actually have it. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, in, in 2011, when she was diagnosed, she was advised she did not need to start ART. And over the next decade, her uh, CD4 cell count fell from 1,000 to 800, but it really was still in the normal range. She occasionally had de- detectable viremia, but never higher than 200. And she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. She has a strong family history. She's overweight. She moved to Boston in 2021. She did not initially seek any care from an ID or HIV specialty group because she wasn't on any treatment. And her primary care doctor eventually refers to you for further evaluation. So what you find out is she's on valsartan, metformin, and sertraline. Her, these are her vitals and her BMI and her labs. Her CD4 cell count is 710, 32%. Her HIV RNA is now, quote, detectable below 20 copies. So question for the group. Would you recommend ART, antiretroviral therapy? Yes, no or shared decision-making on this extremely controversial topic. All right. Shared decision-making is the winner. Um, and I'm going to start this time with Chloe. Yeah, I agree with the audience. I think that there's very little data. And what we do know comes, what the, some of the best data we do know is, comes from the START study, but we just don't know a lot. And I think the thing that would sway me is that the CD4 count has changed over time, that there's now some level of detectable 
viremia, and there's we, we know that there's a relationship between viremia and inflammation, and she now has a cardiovascular problem and diabetes. So based on this and the risk of viremia and inflammation, I think the overall it's overall weighing me towards advising a yes, but she would need to understand the nuanced data and be satisfied with that as an area in which is quite a gray area. But, but my suggestion would be yes, but with her agreement. Okay. Carlos? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I think that because she's got diabetes, her obesity, she's got other markers of inflammation. As you know, the ACTG tried to do a study to look at this, and it, it failed because we weren't able to enroll the participants necessary to look at this. So there's not an answer from a clinical trial. But the evidence of ongoing inflammation in people that are still even, you know, sort of elite controllers of highly suppressed non-therapy would sway me to at least have a discussion with this patient that if it was me, I would start in therapy. I would like to start therapy. And that would be my recommendation to the patient. Because what, when I've had discussions like this, yes, it's shared decision-making, but the patient frequently would say, what would you do? What would you recommend for yourself or for a family member? And my advice there would be to start therapy. Uh, would you like to address uh, the, the, the question, Paul? So I, I, th- I think that uh, shared decision making is is a is a good way to think about this. Um, I think it's clear that we don't have the actual answer for based on prospective clinical trial data. Um, I tend to agree with Carlos about uh, uh, leaning towards uh, treatment myself, but I, I, I would not object if she felt on consideration that she wanted to watch and wait. There's a great comment on the chat, Paul, and somebody on the chat says, "Well, what about?" you know, weight gain and other issues related to starting antiretroviral therapy. Yeah, that's a, that's a challenge. Anyway, I just think that the uh, DHHS guidelines, which are generally very pro-treatment, do mention the absence of data um, for clinical endpoints in the start and Toprano study for this number of people with HIV controller status. Um, it does say that they wouldn't recommend the c- kind of observation that that was done at the beginning for this patient, although I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I think when you have a patient whose viral load is undetectable when they're first diagnosed, uh, I think it's reasonable to follow them or discuss the pros and cons of therapy. Um, anyway, significant uncertainty remains about the optimal management of elite controllers who have maintained undetectable uremia in the absence of art for years. All of us have in our practice patients like this. We've been following them for, especially when you're old like we are, for a long time. They've never been on treatment. Uh, and then there's this uh, this weird clinical data showing that uh, elite controllers may have adverse clinical outcomes. Uh, and it comes in cardiovascular risk. And then this hospitalization data, which is very, very surprising. Um, but not, not all the studies show this. I just mentioned a few others here. So it's really uh, kind of a, a tricky, a tricky decision. Uh, I uh, recently had this topic reviewed in one of our fellows' conferences, and this is one of his slides he shared with me. And these are the work from a lot of people, and Peter Hunt sort of pioneered this work, showing that people who are, are HIV controllers tend to have a lot of T cell activation. They tend to have um, some more inflammatory markers are high and that it's known that T-cell activation is not a good thing in general, so that they're doing something to maintain virologic control that may have adverse outcomes. 
So, um, and then the point that uh, Chloe mentioned about the CD4 decline, this has actually uh, been observed now across multiple studies, is that people who have, look at these numbers here, less than one copy of virus, that they have a pretty flat slope of their CD4 cell count, whereas one to 10 copies, it's just a little bit lower, whereas if they're greater than 10, then they're, uh, they have a decline. And she does have occasional detectable virus in this sort of under 200 range. And when you measured it, when you measured it here, it was, it was detectable less than, less than 20. One other thing to mention, as I said, but just to show these data is that, that people who are di newly diagnosed who end up um, uh, being followed longitudinally off ART, that there is actually a fairly high rate that they'll eventually progress. And I just call your attention to this bullet here, um, that 52% that of the elite controllers progressed uh, and 66% of the viremic controllers progressed. And what they meant by progression in this study is from Spain is that they had uh, any outcome that was adverse related to virologic control, immunologic outcome, meaning decline in CD4, or clinical outcome, meaning a clinical event. So I'm going to show the failed study that uh, Carlos made fun of before, because I was very involved in it. And it was a study of HIV controllers and ART. And it was started by Florencia Siegel um, and then taken over by John Lee, who ended up finishing the study, despite the hurdles that uh, Carlos mentioned. Um, the study began with a period of time when we enrolled people who were controllers of, of you can see they had to have HIV RNA for at least less than 500 for at least 12 months. And then they were given all given opivirine FTC TDF. And then this was not a randomization. At the end of 48 weeks, they were given the option of continuing the treatment or stopping their treatment. Uh, and um, this study was difficult to enroll. And I'm going to ask you the primary reason why the study was difficult to enroll. A, HIV controllers are rare. B, HIV controllers do not participate in research. C, HIV controllers believe they do not need art because that's what we've been telling them for years or some other reason. Okay, and and fifty one percent of the audience said uh, that they do, they believe they don't need art, and this uh, turned out to be absolutely correct. In fact, I have to, to say, give a shout out to the elite controller community because they have been so generous in participating in research studies. And as a result, when we projected this clinical trials enrollment numbers, we thought that we would be able to enroll way faster than we did. But it turns out that this was a, a, actually a major psychological barrier um, because they were didn't feel like they needed ART. So I had one person tell me, look, if you were offering me an experimental vaccine or if you were offering me some special uh, uh, vitamin supplement, then I would participate. But since you're offering ART in this study, I don't, I don't want to take ART. And so they basically refused to participate. And uh, 
Carlos, did you have ex- similar experience? Yeah, I was going to say my experience is similar, but, but we also had in, in our side, one of the challenges was that the elite controllers were interested, but they would go talk to their primary physicians who would say, you don't need antiretroviral therapy. <laughs> so the variation was that they were being advised by their clinicians, don't get treated. Even though we were kind of moving them into agreeing to participate in a study, because I agree with you, the elite controller community has been very, very you know, giving with their ability to participate in studies. But then they would go talk to their, to their clinician that they trusted who said, don't, don't start on therapy. And that would be it. Uh, so Chloe, you're, you're a clinician. So do you, would you advise one of your elite controllers to participate in a study where they could get 48 weeks of opivirine based arts and then stop if they wanted? <laughs> well, I mean, I was just thinking what a great study it was, but I think the difficulty is that with Wolpivirine, you can't, you know, it's difficult enough because it's got a low barrier. You know, if, if you can't detect resistance, it's, you know, I think of all the options, I probably wouldn't choose that therapeutic option, but I think it's a wonderful study, particularly the crossover design after the, the initial uh, phase. I think it's wonderful, the opportunity to stop. So I think I would try and persuade p- people to go into the study overarchingly. I tend to really try and favor research where there's data gaps. Thank, thank you. I mean, ropivirine was chosen at the time because, uh, you know, as, despite its, its flaws, and you mentioned one of them, is that the uh, safety profile is extremely, extremely good. So anyway, what did we find, even though we didn't fully enroll, um, that there were measurable effects of antiretroviral therapy that had, you know, activated CD8 cells dropped, markers of immune exhaustion improved, um, HIV-specific immune responses declined. Uh, there, people who had detectable virus by single copy assay, the virus went, went down. And then one of the weirdest things about it was that the quality of life instrument that we gave people got better over time. Now, I have to say this is a single arm study, but if it had gone in the other direction, it would have been poor. But no change in CD4 cell count, no change in the, quote, reservoir markers uh, at all. And then the people who stopped ART, they they still were virologic controllers, uh, which was actually reassuring. So now that you have seen these data, would you recommend ART for our patient who is a woman with uh, obesity and diabetes and of CD4 second that's dropped 300 cells in 10 years and is now 700 and a viral load that's detectable but unquantifiable. Okay, we're voting. It's funny, I can't hear the music, but I occasionally get a little, little glimmer of it. All right, let's take a look. So very <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. kind of the same. <laughs> yeah. I have to say I'm in love with the study. I just love the study. It's amazing <laughs> and the findings are amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, anyway, we did our we did our best. So um she was given the information about possible benefits. She started Dolotegavirlimividine. Her viral load went from detectable to undetectable. <laughs> CD4 cell count has not changed. Uh, and that is the outcome of this case. Any further questions or comments before we go to our last case? All right. 
Uh, all right, next case is about a pregnancy case. <laughs> Sorry? Okay. This is a 30-year-old woman who informs you she would like to have a baby. Uh, she has been uh, HIV, known to be have HIV for three years and was tested as part of her STI screening. And her baseline CD4 cell count was 440, viral load was 1,200. She had no resistance, and she was placed on Bictegravir after CTAF with rapid viral suppression. She doesn't have any adverse events. She reports 100% adherence to her medications. So would you change the HIV regimen to something else? And here are your options. No, options are no. Uh, yes to dolotegravir plus TAF-FTC. Yes to dolotegravir plus TDF-FTC. Yes to raltegravir plus TDF-FTC. Or yes to something else. Okay. Okay, guess I can see the results first. And we have 40% switching and about even number uh, to TAF FTC dolotegravir. And then some saying uh, they would not switch, and some saying they'd switch to TDF FTC. A few still sticking with raltegravir. <clears throat> I guess uh, Elaine, she, she doesn't have the baby yet, but she's certainly a, a pediatric issue. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I think the issue is that we have the bits of data, but incomplete data. And what we can't speak to is in terms of maybe the safety of these combinations of, <laughs> along the entire spectrum from conception through pregnancy. We, we have uh, as it affects as it affects the, the baby. Right. Um, we had um, some scary early data on dalutegravir in association with with neural tube defects. Over time, that has been washed out, and I think uh, coming next couple of months, we're likely to see that float away entirely. And, and with more data, we've seen that that association has not has not um, really held up. Um, we saw invested that dalutegravir based regimen was very safe and that there was possibly some advantage to um, the baby to outcomes using TAF, but that was only amongst women who started after 14 weeks. So, um, and we don't have as much experience in pregnancy with Bictegravir. But I'll lean into what you said earlier, Paul, which is, you know, what's really the difference between Bictegravir and Dalutegravir? So, Thanks for that perspective. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, Carlos, any, any thoughts here on this one? <clears throat> no, I mean, I think we have more experience with Dalutegravir, TAF, FTC in, in situations like this. And I think that's why I would switch her to that regimen, but uh, again, Bictegravir is not necessarily the recommended regimen in, in, in pregnancy just because we don't have a lot of data, and therefore I would probably go with, with Delotegravir FTC-TAF, but uh, that, that would be my, my, my way to go. Definitely not with 
no, to withdraw Tegever. Okay, and Chloe? Yeah, I would definitely start as you mean to go on. And I think we've got good data for Dolutegavir at TAF FTC. We've just seen the advantages in terms of the weight gain for the, for the baby and the, the safety adverse events <coughs> being better. Um, so I would definitely go as start as you mean to go on. And I would like to, on a point of advocacy, thank you, Paul, for not coming directly to me after Elaine and for asking Carlos, <laughs> because women in pregnancy, we're not a niche population. We are half the population. Exactly. Uh, I do want to uh, just say something about the, the weight gain. So the data that are from the Bested study, which was conducted in nine countries, many countries where women were underweight to start with, and had inadequate weight gain during pregnancy. So there definitely was an advantage for with TAF, but I'm assuming this is a woman in, in Paul's clinic where in the U.S. we often see overweight rather than underweight being an issue. And it's not, not great to be obese during pregnancy. So, so you really have to think carefully about how the data we have apply to this particular yeah. woman. And there, were the, there was that study which looked at, um, which showed that people had more sort of metabolic complications, didn't they, on TAF FTC, TAF FTC when they were overweight. So more hypertension and I think related to obesity. So I think absolutely. When will we have enough data on Bictegravir to know whether um, it could be used in this situation? So I, I think... Paul, go through it. I can't remember if it's if it's all, if it's already um, on the recommended list. You usually want to have at least two hundred conception exposures to to you know say okay. There there are no yeah. concerning safety findings around around conception, right? But in terms of infant outcomes or birth outcomes, that it, it could take several thousand yes yeah it's a very very helpful beginning to our discussion just to show you the data uh this is the study that is also called vested or impact 2010 uh, and the study was um uh enrolled women who either were treatment naive or had been on art for for 14 days or 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 fewer and they um Many of them had been started already on TDF-FTC efavirenz, I should just say, in the, in the study. And most of the participants were enrolled in sub-Saharan Africa, some in Brazil, some in the United States. And the three regimens that were tested were dolutegravir plus TAF-FTC, dolutegravir plus TDF-FTC, and standard of care, which is efavirenz, FTC-TDF, which... Um, and then the virologic outcomes, um, at least as far as uh, viral load undetectable at time of delivery, were favored the dolotegravir arms. Um, and obviously the resistance emergence favored the dolotegravir arms. But the pregnancy outcomes, I think that people's surprise seemed really to favor the TAF-FTC dolotegravir arm. And one thing this reminded me of, and Elaine, maybe you could um, give me your opinion, in the PROMISE study, the TDF lopinavir-ritonavir strategy was, was actually associated with poor outcomes, as I recall, worse than zidovidine. 
and alopinavir ritonavir, which makes me think that maybe there's something about high plasma tenofovir levels that's not healthy for developing fetus. What, any thoughts about that? Or um, My thoughts are that exactly. I think there's something about the combination of the lopinavir ritonavir with the tenofovir and some as yet undefined pharmacokinetic interaction that is not in the baby's best best yeah. interest. We know that tenofovir levels increase by 30 to 50% with lopinavir ritonavir. And since the plasma levels of TAF are so much lower than with TDF and the dose is so much lower, maybe that's the reason we're seeing this benefit of TAF over TDF in pregnancy at least. So I think they did try and explore that a little bit in, in promise and didn't, weren't able to find that Holy grail, but um, it does, it, it does also, um, you know, bring up just the issue of treating women with such a difficult drug during pregnancy and we're able to take it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then this is the weight, the weight data that that you were alluding to. Um, where you definitely uh, have more weight gain in the TAF-FTC dolotegravir arm than the comparators, which is not surprising at all, given what we know from the advanced study, et cetera. But then this last uh, bullet point, high average weekly weight gain associated with decreased risk of any adverse pregnancy outcomes. Uh, And uh, could be that, as you said, Elaine, that that women entered this study, some of them underweight, or it could just be good to gain the recommended amount of weight during pregnancy, which this regimen had actually the closest to the recommended weight gain during pregnancy was the TAF-FTC dolotegravir arm. So, so Paul, I'll just, on, on that note, there's just, there was um, another study that was presented at Croy um, where they specifically looked at weight gain women, pregnant women in South Africa on the dolutegravir versus efavirenz, not with TEF. And you could see in that study where women were much bigger to start with, right? That the weight gain was much, much greater in mm-hmm. the, the dolutegravir arm yeah. and that you were, you were starting at a, there was a different starting point. Sure. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Just dolutegravir has, has uh, shed its neural tube defect reputation, which is good as, as we're all very happy about that. Um, and <clears throat> so it's now endorsed through all the pregnancy categories. Um, but uh, she's not on dolotegravir, she's on bictegravir. And this gets to what Paul alluded to before. In fact, there are a lot of people on bictegravir. Uh, so even though you recommended that she switch, she didn't switch. Uh, and she becomes pregnant on bictegravir. And mm-hmm. so she's now currently on bictegravir doing well. So now you get an option. Would you switch at this point? She has conceived on Bictagravir. No, yes, switched. Same choices as before. Okay, we're going to... Right, just rounding out the last few voters. Okay. And most <laughs> at this point would not switch, looks like. 
Um, or something. She's still first trimester, right? Oh yeah, she's she's conceived yeah. early in pregnancy. Um, I'm gonna again start with you, Elaine, <laughs> putting you on the spot. What would you do in this situation? Um, well, this would really be joint decision making, but I I think my if if I were you know if this is Carlos' patients and said what would you do, I probably would would um, change the dolutegravir based based regimen. Okay. Um, historically, there okay. were concerns about switching, but um, just the, the process of switching a pregnant woman, um, but um, those are, are less prominent for me now. Okay, good. Uh, and I <clears throat> just want to underscore what the guidelines say. Uh, this is uh, very easy to interpret in that for Bictegravir, insufficient data rules the day. It's really too bad because um, with a drug that's used so extensively, I want to say that the having been a, a, a member of the protocol team for the Vested study, which was a real a real uh, honor that Shaheen Lachman invited me to be on the study, we we actually had an opportunity to include a Bictegravir FTC TAF. Um, strategy added later to the study, but the complexity of doing so from a sort of statistical perspective was, was very high and ultimately we couldn't do it, which is too bad because it really would have been great to get some prospective pregnancy data of this regimen that's so widely used. So, um, Carlos or Chloe? So, well, I think it, it, it's worth noting that that turns out to be the problem and the way that we end up getting data in pregnancy is, re- you know, is retrospectively. Mm-hmm. So, you know, another reason to keep this woman on her current regimen is it'll be one more data point to tell us if it's yeah, safe, safe or not, right? As yeah. opposed to including pregnant women up front and early uh, in clinical trials so we can have the data in a more timely fashion. Completely Get off agree. my soapbox. No, yeah. I completely, 100% agree. Um, you know, I mean, I think... I think this case, together with some of the, the data presented by Eileen from Croy, is, is a good, is reassuring on 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 dolutegravir, you know, regimens, and it really is from a global health perspective. I mean, this is TDL is the regimen being used globally. I mean, PEPFAR, this is the regimen of choice for everybody, whether you're starting, you're switching, you're pregnant. And and this data for the global HIV is very reassuring from all aspects. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, this is a study looking at switches more in more modern times, because there was a a while, while that we didn't switch because we were afraid that switching women, uh, regimens would lead to, they would, they would get confused and fail more, but it turns out that there really isn't much of a difference with art switch, without art switch. These are data from France. And, um, I want to say that uh, the the thing about our regimens now is that they're so good that it's not very hard for people to go from taking one pill a day to taking two pills a day. And the hardest thing actually is that the insurance coverage of uh, TAF-FTC in this country is actually pretty lousy right now, um, at least in, in the, the Boston area. But 
but it's it's uh it's it's actually you can switch without causing excess problems so she did can i just yeah. paul just to add on to that the the most important thing is viral suppression right because that's yeah. what's going to keep mom healthy and prevent transmission so the the questions that we're asking about regimen really have to do with the safety right, right of the regimen right. for the baby over the the you know, period from conception through birth and in some settings through breastfeeding. So it just does make the point we're not even talking about viral suppression now because all of these regimens are so, so good. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Great. Um, So anyway, this is what happened. Uh, She actually um, did well on Dolotegravir plus TAF-50C and has a healthy baby boy. And we, uh, I could, these are basically just a recap of what we discussed. Cabropivirine has only been tested in people with no history of treatment failure resistance. Avoid use in particular in people with NNRTI resistance. Archive genotype can guide treatment switches in some patients on complex regimens. Dolotegravir and Bictegravir plus nucleosides maintain viral suppression even with extensive nucleoside resistance. Elite controllers are uncommon, but may remain clinically stable off art for years and treatment is of uncertain benefit, but theoretically can reduce the risk of non-AIDS complications. And then the optimal regimen right now appears to be dolotegravir plus TAF-FTC. And we are looking forward to getting some better Bictegravir pregnancy data. I want to thank these uh, people for help, help helping me with their, uh, with, with this and uh, time to take Q and A. Oh, this is the, that, that see whether we have have uh, solidified our knowledge. If you want to just vote one last time on this question real quickly, and I'm sure you have. There we go. That's exactly what you, what we want to see. All right. Thanks very much. Q&A. Thank you. So um, I don't know. So I'm listed as giving, as moderating the Q&A. The Q&A for this session, it's an interesting one because we covered so many different uh, topics. Uh, and I'm going to look to Donna or Stephanie for advice on we Go ahead with doing this. I'm sorry. We're going to move to the next. Move to the next talk. session. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're getting used to doing these programs in person again. Okay. Thank. You. <laughs> um, the, so the next uh, next presentation, uh, we have a number of uh, good questions on my iPad up here uh, from the audience for those cases. Um, and I'd encourage you as much as you can to find uh, speakers uh, in our in our break uh, during the rest of the program uh, because they're important questions and we're not trying to dis- dismiss them uh, 